In this dialogue, I had the opportunity to speak with John Baker. John was an early American disciple of Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan teachers in America, and in many ways, uh, the teacher most responsible for bringing Tibetan Buddhism into popularity in the United States. John and I had a fantastic discussion that ranged from descriptions and stories from the early years of Trungpa's arrival through the process of discipleship. We spoke about uh, the classic book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, and ended with some deep insights about the relationship with a teacher, the nature of the path, uh, and, and even Trungpa's way of understanding the practice of meditation. I am sure that you will enjoy this. Thank you very much for listening. What are we about today? All right. Well, I'm gonna, I wanted to talk to you about cutting through spiritual materialism. And uh, I'm doing a meditation teacher training right now. And one of the books I'm having people read is cutting through spiritual materialism. And, and so that was part of what inspired me to think that I could uh, speak to you about it. It's, it. You know, I read it the first time probably 30 years ago or so. And... It was one of a handful of books that had the biggest uh, effect on me. You know, so it was it was important at the initiation point of my journey. Uh, so it's one I've always uh, held dear to heart. And uh, you know, later I my path was more dominated by the Advaita Vedanta teachings of Ramana Maharshi. Um, you know, I started with that. Oh, really? Uh, interesting. We sort of crossed paths. Definitely. I mean, I um, before I met Trungpa Rinpoche, I meditated for maybe a year, a year and a half at the uh, Ramana Maharshi Ashram here in Manhattan on 6th Street East. Okay. And it was run by a retired UN person, devotee of Ramana Maharshi, named Bhagavat, Arunachala Bhagavat. Mm. <laughs> he was a pretty okay. sweet little guy. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I um, I guess I would love to start by just asking you, well, I heard just now a little bit about your very beginnings, but I also know that you were a close uh, disciple of uh, Trungpa, and I just wondered if you could say a little bit about how you uh, met Trungpa, how you got involved with him, how did that ball get rolling? You know, I was very unhappy as a, a boy, especially mm. in prep school. My parents sent me to a private country day school where I experienced anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and I felt like a loner. And um, my junior year, a man came. Uh, do you know who uh, William Sloan Coffin was? No. No? No? He was the chaplain at Yale, and he um, led the first freedom rides uh, down into the south. And he um, also was on TV with William F. Buckley. They had debates um, that have okay. actually been put into a film recently, I think. Oh, great. yes. I, I remember that now. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, he came to my, my school and led a three-day religious conference over the weekend, and it blew me away. You know, it was mm-hmm. asking all the big questions, you know, 
is there a God? You know, what's the meaning of life? What about death and life after all these things? And I just caught fire in it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I went to that thing. And then the next year, there was a follow-up conference in Buck Hills Falls, Pennsylvania. And my school sent me and one of their fellows as delegates. Mm. And then when I went to, to college, I went to Yale, I was looking for that kind of inquiry. And, and I wanted to find these the answers to these questions. And I just didn't find it. Mm. And I was very disappointed and sort of slogging through um, Chaucer and Biology 101 and that kind of thing. And uh, after my sophomore year, I left. Mm. And I joined the Merchant Marine and became a sailor. Mm-hmm. And I shipped out for about a year and a half um, to South America and to Far East and a bit around the United States coastwise. And um, I was probably lucky that I might have just kept going and never gone back. But what happened was Vietnam was happening. <clears throat> and I called up my parents one day and found out that um, they were calling me up for the draft and I hadn't shown. And, and um, for my physical and the FBI was starting to look for me. Mm-hmm. So I quick zipped back up to Yale and talked to my dean, and he wrote a letter to the draft board, and I went back to college. Mm. And I went to graduate school, and I couldn't stay in graduate school because Nixon took away draft deferments for first-year grad students. I moved to New York and became a teacher in the New York City public school system, and that was very inspiring. And one day I was very lonely, and I was walking around in the village, and I saw this poster up, and it said, Baba Ramdas, Peren, Dr. Richard Alpert, speaking mm. on Ashtanga Yoga. And my brother had written me from uh, the University of Pennsylvania that he was studying yoga by mail um, mm-hmm. from an outfit in California. He was a Carnegie Tech, actually. And um, it was um, Paramahansa Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship, and that he was going to get enlightened. By mail, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't know what enlightenment was. I didn't know what yoga was. So I figured I'd go and listen to this guy speak, Ramdas. You know, I, I knew who he was, Richard Alpert, Larry, and all the. I read their books, Politics of Ecstasy, and mm-hmm. you know, psychedelic experience. So I went and heard, and I was knocked out. I mean, you know, Ramdas, he's a he. He spins magic, and you know, he's uh, mm-hmm. he's delightful. Was. And um, so I began searching spiritually, and I kept trying all the venues and reading the books that he recommended, and there was a lot. And I went and sat uh, for a few weeks in a Benedictine monastery in Elmira, New York. I, um, I visited the, um, or the, you know, the Ramana Maharshi Ashram in Zendo here in New York, uh, Paisan. Uh, Shimano was teaching uh, in the Zendo. I went into that. And there was the Ramakrishna Society that I remember was really dark. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a funny place. And um, I just tried everything. And uh, nothing seemed to really make a lot of sense. I, I, the best thing was the Ramana Maharshi Ashram. And I finally sort of stopped shopping and you know just stayed there. And, um, but then, uh, this fellow came to New York to Rinpoche and he was giving a talk and a friend of mine suggested we go and I went. And, um, I mean, I'm just making a long story short. Uh, sure. 
And I um, actually I went twice. The first time, Rinpoche hadn't gotten in, and his student, Kungadawa, Richard Arthur, wonderful Englishman who just died, actually, became a good friend of mine. And uh, he, was, he was speaking, and I was attracted. So when Trumpa Rinpoche came a few months later, he managed to get a visa. I went and heard him speak, and I just wasn't interested. He didn't, wasn't my kind of guy. Mm. You know, he, he showed up in a suit and tie and had this blonde sitting next to him. And they were sitting on chairs, and I'm sitting on the floor in full lotus, you know, <laughs> trying to impress the guru, I guess, and trying not mm-hmm. to look up her mini skirt and her underwear. <clears throat> uh, that was his wife. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to follow up. And instead, a friend of mine and I were going to go to India and to kind of see if we could find a teacher the way Ramdas said. Something that really knock us out, inspire us, you know, make yeah. a deep, deep connection. And I bought a ticket on a charter flight for August, sold the keys to my rent-controlled apartment, sold my car, and um, I was waiting. And my friend called me up from what was then called Tale of the Tiger. Now it's called Carmi Choming. And he said, you know, it's hot in New York, and this guy's giving teachings. Why don't you come up here and fill the time? And then we'll go. We were going to go together. So I did. I caught a bus. And I went there, and um, and Trump Rinpoche um, wasn't lecturing yet. He was, but he was giving what what he called interviews. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what, thought, what the heck? And I signed up for an interview. And it took place in a little. Um, like office, tiny little room that he had that was an anteroom to his tiny bedroom that he shared with Diana. And um, we sat there and I couldn't think of anything to say and didn't say anything. and Nothing happened and finally he just said, uh, you know, well, he was sitting there smoking and looking out the window. And he said, well, maybe we ought to end. And I left. And then I thought, well, you know, I, I wasted an opportunity. So I signed up again. Mm. And this time, this time we met on the front porch, just the two of us. This is when he did it. And something opened in me, you know, I mean, I think it was him that did it, and it was his openness and gentleness. And I just sort of poured out all my unhappiness to him. Mm. And then he uh, said, he knew I meditated. I told him that, you know, I'd been meditating for a while, quite a while, I mean, a couple of years, mostly with the Ramana Maharshi people. Mm-hmm. And um, so he said, let's meditate together. So I assumed a meditation posture, and um, I'm looking out across this meadow of uh, weeds, you know, then used to be a, some kind of meadow, and there was a tractor coming across, and, you know, about a half a mile of meadow or something down to a stream, and um, basically, uh, he uh, gave me what in, in the tradition is called pointing out instruction. Mm. Or sometimes they call it, uh, the teacher shows you the nature of your mind. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that this was coming. I had no idea what it was. You know, I didn't even know those words. Mm. <laughs> it was clueless. But he blew me away. And mm-hmm. I knew something deep and profound had happened to me, uh, but I had seen something. 
and everything mm-hmm. unfolded from there. I mean, that was kind of the turning point of my life. Mm-hmm. And what year was that? That was 1970, July. Ni- 1970. And so, and mm-hmm. so from there, you. You know, clearly you got involved because uh, oh, yeah. I believe you started uh, working with him editing, cutting through spiritual materialism because uh, you were one well, of the two came, editors. It, yeah, that came much later. I mean, um, I kept thinking I was going to India, and he kept saying, oh, you ought to stay around a little while. Mm-hmm. And finally I realized I wasn't going to India, but there's no point, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found mm-hmm. here what I was hoping to find there. And then he had been invited to Colorado to by some people out there to teach at the university. And I asked him if I could go out there with him. Mm-hmm. That was a, towards the end of the summer. I just kept staying around. We had all summer together and more and more contact with him. All kinds of wild, interesting things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he was such an interesting character. And um, so he said yes. So I went to Colorado with him. And uh, we lived together for a year and a half, he and I and one other fellow that had asked the same thing, a guy named Marvin Casper, who was the mm-hmm. co-editor. Right. Coming through. And we wound up renting a duplex. And Rinpoche and Diana and their baby, Tagi, and later Gesar, uh, inhabited the downstairs. And Marvin and I had the upstairs. And I was his secretary, his driver, his, when she, she, she was away, I helped him bathe, cooked, you know, and his student. Mm. And um, it kept unfolding, mm. both personally between him and me, and then organizationally. You know, we started a meditation center, and uh, Marvin and I were the co-directors for the first five years. Mm-hmm. And then we had, then there was cutting through and then the myth of freedom after that. And then um, we started Naropa. Marvin and I mm-hmm. started Naropa. We went to him. We said, look, there are all these academics showing up, you know. Um, we got to start a school. Right. And he agreed. He loved it. Loved the idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we started Naropa. We hoped, uh, you know, we, we hoped that we, for that first summer we might get 500 people. 2,000 came. Mm-hmm. Outrageous. <laughs> Just an explosion. Wow. Allen Ginsberg, Allen Ginsberg was Rinpoche's student by that time. That's a whole set of stories. And um, he uh, brought all his friends mm. and, and started what he called the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics because Jack was dead. That's right. Um, so, you know, as I said, uh, you and Marvin were mm-hmm. uh, editing, cutting through spiritual materialism and for the people who may be listening who aren't familiar, although I, you know, so many people are, there may not be many, but this is really a modern classic. And I think it, I would be curious to hear your uh, sense, you know, because so many spiritual books have been written over the last 50 years, um, but so few of them uh, have attained the kind of, you know, classic status of this particular book now of course when you were writing it you couldn't be certain that that was going to happen but what do you think it is about this book that makes it such an enduring important classic i mean i just read it again uh over the past few months and felt like i was reading it so i can't i couldn't believe how much 
I'd missed in the first few readings um, or thought maybe somebody snuck in there and added some stuff. Uh, but it's just, it's such an enduring classic book. You know, I have the same experience. I, I've been reading it recently and, and to help with some things that I'm teaching. Every time I pick this thing up, I feel like I've never seen it before. Mm. It, I think what, what happens is that we evolve, you know, our, our understanding of it evolves, and then you come back to it, and you and there's so much in it. Mm. But then you hear more. You know, you hear more of the things that you didn't hear before. That's, right. that's my suspicion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And, so how did it come yeah. about, this book? Uh, I, know it came, I know it was originally a series of lectures. You know, what was it that um, inspired the Rinpoche to give a spiritual le- uh, a set of spiritual lectures on cutting through spiritual materialism, and then what inspired him to take those lectures and turn them into a book? Um, well, I mean, uh, you know, he'd written, he had had a book, he didn't, he never wrote a book, but he, um, there was a book that was made out of his talks in England called Meditation in Action. It was mm. published um, by um, Penguin. And, um, that was the first, and also uh, he he worked on. I mean, you know, he always, he told the story of his life, and that was published in Born in Tibet, and that was in England. But when he got here, and there was nothing that had been done. Um, it was early, and we decided, well, let's do a book, you know, relating here. Now, his style of teaching changed from England to the United States, and it had to do with the students who were coming. Mm-hmm. Um, he felt that. Um, that he was much more relaxed here and that he could open up and be more generous with these, with the students who were showing up here because they were less likely to distort, um, what mm-hmm. he was going to say. He, he felt that suffering produces a lot of distortion. So he tightened up a lot in the cities and he opened up a lot in Boulder. Mm-hmm. And because he said in the cities there's so much suffering that people take what you say and they want to use it and, and then in doing that they're, they're twisting it. Mm. And you have to be more careful about what you say. He, in the cities, he was much more terse. Mm-hmm. And he had been in England as well. And then he gave... Um, <laughs> people were coming from the coast. You know, Boulder uh, was like a jumping-off point for every commune you could think of. There were communes all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, there was this one commune that came and became his students. Uh, they, were called the, they called themselves the Pygmies. Because a bunch of them were short, and they mm. called, they called their commune the Pygmy Farm. Mm. And um, there's a book that one of the ex Pygmies wrote recently called "Taming Untamable Beings" about that period. Of mm. I love the way he starts it. He says, "If you can remember the '60s, you weren't there. Mm. <laughs> they were doing so much acid, mm-hmm. and uh, they were wonderful people. But every commune had its own flavor." Very different one to the next. And then there were all the people who weren't not communists. They were just coming to Boulder. Boulder was full of hippies. Mm. It was also full of Seventh-day Adventists. When I first arrived in Boulder in 1970, you couldn't buy liquor within the city limits. Right. You know, because of the, it was controlled by the Seventh-day Adventist church. So um, he gave uh, his first seminar. And the students got together and they rented this house from a yoga instructor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had a garage with a 
which was her yoga studio, just a little split-level, you know, track house with a little two-car garage. And, right. um, and she, she had turned it into a yoga studio, and this group of students got together and they rented it, and he named it, uh, from Rinpoche, he named it Anitya Bhavan, because he didn't think it was going to last. Anitya Bhavan literally means in Sanskrit, Anitya is impermanence and Bhavan is house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was the house of impermanence because it mm -hmm. wasn't going to last and it didn't. But he gave his first seminar there. And um, we took those talks and maybe some others, I can't even remember. And we edited them into the book, Cutting Through, Marvin and I. Mm. But I think the key thing is that, you know, neither Marvin nor I, especially I, knew anything about Buddhism. Mm. So when we took these talks, we went to him, and we went over every word of the editing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with him. Every every word in that book was gone over and changed in a lot of them, because he right. would talk to us, and we would we would then rewrite it, and we say, "Is this what you mean?" You know, <laughs> and he would say, "Well, yeah, you know, it's fine, but what about you?" Know, he says, "Let's talk about this," and then he would tweak it, and we went back mm. and forth like that for months, and finally. What had happened was that, um, well, I'm cut on, I'll just cut stuff out of this story. But um, we decided to finish the book and in, by going into a retreat together, the three of us. Mm. And we rented a house in California. He was going to do a speaking tour in California. And before that tour started, we had this house up on uh, at the mouth of the Russian River in Jenner, mm. California. It was a cabin. You know, out mm -hmm. in the sands. Yeah. And uh, it was just a cabin with a couple of bunk beds and a big bed that we gave to him. And Marvin and I slept in the bunk beds. And we stayed there for three weeks and um, finished cutting through. Mm. Going Beautiful. back and forth, you know, with him. Mm. Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing gift to, to me and Marvin. Yeah, what an education. Um, oh, an unbelievable yeah, opportunity. Immense. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really uh, it's an incredible story. <clears throat> now, getting and into see, a little bit. Is, go ahead. Uh, I'm just going to back up one thing. Is that this? Got to understand this about Trungpa Rinpoche. When I talk about him giving pointing out instruction, mm. you know, that makes it sound like there's a lesson. Right. It wasn't. It was. The, it was the relationship that he opened up between him. And us, or him and me, mm -hmm. you know, between mm -hmm. him and the student. And once that happens, every time you're with him, it's happening again mm. and again. Mm. I mean, every time I walked into his presence, I felt like, you know, <laughs> felt like I felt, felt like I was being X-rayed. You know, like you mm -hmm. could just see straight through me. Right. And it was a a challenge to be completely open and present. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, this is perfect, actually, because there were a few things about the book reading it this time, as I said, that I, I noticed for the first time. And one of them, this wasn't where I was going to start, but I think it's perfect because you just got the ball rolling. But uh, the chapter called The Guru, uh, you know, I, I this part I think I probably remember from before about how he thinks it's better to speak of a spiritual friend than a guru. Uh, but what I think I was really hearing this time differently than I have before is 
uh, how he said the essence of the relationship between you know the spiritual friends or the, the student and the teacher is mutual communication that that that's what it rests on the ability to communicate honestly is the quality that one should be looking for and that seems to be what you're saying in relationship to you know your relationship with the Rinpoche that it was this uh, this communication and the the openness that was the driver uh, of what was being uh, transmitted absolutely it was more than a driver it was everything mm. it was it was like the air I used to feel like when I used to say when I walked into a room where Trump was that somebody had just turned up the rheostat and the room got right. brighter mm. it's it's the mm-hmm. it's the really you know that in tantric Buddhism the guru, the, the lama, the teacher, the whatever you want to call it, becomes more and more important the higher up you go on the path. Mm. And it's because the the teacher is the communicator of that kind of extraordinary openness of mind. Right. And it's I was aware while I was reading the book this time that you know it's easy for us to hear the word communication and think in terms of conversation and talking, but that as you're just saying, the kind of mutual sharing that I think is implied by the word communication in this book far exceeds any kind of verbal communication. Yes, I would agree. Mm. agree. And, you know, when I use... You know, I, I I just think the term spiritual materialism and the and the, the concept that that Trungpa developed with it is so important for anyone uh, on a spiritual path, and and when I when I try to explain it to people who who don't know it, you know, uh, what I, the way I tend to talk about it, and I would just love to get your impression, your general impression of of, of how I speak about it, but I. I generally say that, you know, first of all, I, I say that spiritual materialism is not, shouldn't be reduced to something like spiritual consumerism. Uh, it doesn't just mean acquiring a spiritual lifestyle, although it could include that, but it's more profound, in, its, in the more profound depths, what it's pointing to is any way in which we are turning spirituality or freedom or, you know, however you want to denote the goal any way in which we're turning it into something an experience um a set of knowledge anything that you could turn it into that would be something you could have would be uh engaging in spiritual materialism uh as opposed to giving up all ideas about you know the way Trungpa speaks about it in this book all these all of our dreams and fantasies uh you know, giving all of those up and and so that something can happen that has nothing to do with you getting something. I agree. Well said. Uh, and and one of the things that I read this time that this this one blew me away because I really feel like I never even read this word in the book before. I have no recollection of it being in the book. But this time I realize it's all throughout the book and I thought it was so profound. Um which is, he talks about 
following the path of disappointment. Uh, and he speaks about the the path oh, wow. of awakening being wow. a path of disappointment, and I and I so deeply felt it in this reading that 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 the path is an unending succession of recognizing that whatever you thought was the goal, or whatever you thought you had attained or would attain, you know those those dreams keep getting dashed. You keep realizing it's not that. You keep living through the disappointment of of giving up your fantasy of of some awakening and and I just found it so uh refreshing to think about the path not in terms of what you're going to attain but it, just in terms of this this following the trail of disappointment until one uh you know the way the way that I heard it was until you end up right here where you started you know before before you developed all kinds of ideas about some place you thought you were going to get to, uh, and I just thought it was—it's poetically beautiful, it's spiritually potent, and it had a big effect on me in this reading. Mm. Has a big effect on me too. I'm 74 years old, <laughs> and um, you know, I was 25 when that book was done, five, mm. six, something like that, seven, and. Uh, I mean, really, the end of life is, um, I, I, I'm finding an experience of loss. Mm. Loss of all kinds. And the path, for me at this point, is coming to um, an accommodation, a grips, an understanding um, of mind with that. Bringing it to mm-hmm. the path, bringing it to the path, mm-hmm. and it, it's a huge opportunity, I know, and it's also an enormous challenge. Yes, I can. I can only imagine. And it's and, and, I, and it's the disappointment you're speaking of. Mm. And, and I think ways. I'm reading this book at a time when I feel there's a transition in my own spiritual life. And and it involves a lot of letting go of ideas, I guess, ideas about what what it meant to be on a spiritual path, what what the goal of the spiritual path was. You know, not that I feel less inspired because I definitely don't. I just feel like. All of those, so many of my fantastical romantic ideas were just fantastic romantical romantic ideas, and uh, that's great. And the reality of, and, and this is where I guess I feel the disappointment because on the one hand I feel the joy of just inhabiting reality the way it is, without adding, you know, exciting stories to it. And I feel the I feel the way that brings you into contact with with what's what's already miraculous, uh, and at the same time, I feel the disappointment in the sense of loss of some kind of script, spiritual script that needs to be thrown in the trash. Sounds right to me. Mm-hmm. 
And and so you said, you know, you were 25 years old when you got started. You got involved with Rinpoche yeah. when you were 25, and it's now 50 years later. Um, and and you you said that you are embracing the end, you know, coming to, toward the end of life. How do you look, how do you how do you see your entire path? I mean, your life really, as you said, I mean, Rinpoche initiated you on a path that you've been on ever since. Um, so, you know, you're someone, I, I don't know you well, I know I know of you and we have mutual friends, um, and mm-hmm. I, I have a great deal of respect for everything I've heard about you and just the fact that I know uh, you've had such a, a life of dedication to the path. And I'm curious, at this point, uh, looking at your own life, what what would you say to younger seekers? You know, either either not so young like myself or or much younger than me about the possibility that you were introduced to uh and what it means to follow that path. Well, there's some generalities that you can make, you know, and then there's the fact that each one of us is so different. Mm. And we all live through those general experiences in very unique ways. Um, in terms of generalities, I, I feel it's, 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 I want people to find a genuine spiritual tradition. Um, not a panacea, not uh, full of promises, but one mm. that actually deals, you know, with you. And more than that, that you have to connect to a genuine lineage holder, someone who understands the heart of it and can mm. communicate it to you, the student, um, in a way that is helpful. And, you know, the whole teaching of spiritual materialism is all about the difference between true spirituality and, on the one hand and self-aggrandizement mm. on the other. You know, building yourself up in some way. And um, it's funny, when Trump Rinpoche was leaving Tibet, he said that there, uh, one of his teachers handed him this book, and it was a book about spiritual materialism. And the, fellow, the teacher said, you're going to need this where you're going. <laughs> mm. Isn't that amazingly prescient? And um, because when he came here, of course, we were, you know, this was the 60s, 70s, and um, everybody was looking for answers and, uh, you know, willing to, you know, change, become macrobiotic and you know, organic mm-hmm. foods and, you know, and then yoga and, you know, you know, change yourself into a Hindu and, you know, Chan Hari Ram and, you know, <laughs> everybody wanted to put on all that clothing. And um, that's what one of the main forms of spiritual materialism is. You know, you want to change yourself into something else. Mm. Um, somebody else's description of what it means to be happy, holy, all that. And really, it's it's a matter of um, finding the way in, as he said, of finding the the, the reality of your own life mm. and opening to that. And opening to not only inside, 
but outside, opening to, to the world and becoming more generous and open. And I feel like it's a never-ending challenge, a never-ending task for me. And that you become smaller and smaller, uh, less and less significant. Mm. You know, that, uh, that yeah. Mm. Actually, I was going to tell you, one time he gave me instruction on how to be a meditation instructor, meditation mm-hmm. teacher. And it didn't have to do with helping people with their posture or how to focus their mind on their breath or whatever, although that's also, you know, a part of it. Instead, we were sitting outside at a bench, and he said, what it means to be a meditation instructor, this is the, I mean, I can't remember his words, but the, the gist of it is this, if you can do it. He said the teacher opens to the student. Now, you know what it's like when you, when you encounter someone who's very open and accepting of you? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you warm to them, you melt, you relax, you know? You, you feel good, you, and you relax. Mm. And that's what happens with the student. The student, mm. the teacher opens to the student and it lets the student feel that they can be who they are, that they can relax, they can be genuine, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they open to the teacher. Right. And then the teacher opens more to the student. Mm. And then that encourages the student to open more as well. Mm. And it goes back and forth like this. And he called it, he, he called it by different names. He said it's diplomacy. Mm. It's dancing. It's mm-hmm. making love. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and at some point, perhaps, the teacher realizes they, they, can, they have to stop because they've reached the limit of how far the student can go. Right. And you don't want to go further because then you're going to scare the student. You're going to become, mm. like, frightening. And mm-hmm. that will scare them away, and that defeats the whole purpose of the exercise right. of the relationship. And that is the essence of the, of the teacher-student relationship. That's what he felt, you know, really felt it means to teach mm. meditation. And he's right. not talking about meditation as like this act of training your mind. He's talking about meditation as being present, mm. open, complete, open. You know this. Because I've read, you know, read, read enough about you. Complete open awareness. Right. Right. Absolutely. And it has the I quality mean, of love in it, love in it, you know? It really definitely. And, and this, I think, is what, you know, I, I asked you earlier about his use of the word communication, but I think ultimately this is the act of communication he's talking about. And it resonates yeah. so deeply with me. Um, and, and other things he writes in the book about about you know because as you just said meditation and this is certainly this certainly resonates deeply with me that in the end meditation is simply the it's really an, it's just an act of total trust uh so it's just a, a letting go of all defensiveness and and just sitting vulnerably in truth uh, mm-hmm. and i feel that if if you think of meditation in that sense, then it makes complete sense that Rinpoche would say that 
teaching meditation is is this process of opening where the the teacher opens mm-hmm. that allows the student to open so that the student's entering into a deeper and deeper a trust of who they are of life uh which is the essence of meditation that's really beautiful john um and that was one of the parts of the book that that jumped out at me this time the the way that Trungpa spoke about that that dance between the student and the teacher and the communication that was taking place. That concludes this audio dialogue. Thank you so much for listening.